Good afternoon. Welcome to Thursday Night Revelation Bible Study. Tonight we're going to take up the last of the seven churches, the Church of Laodicea. And that is in chapter 3, starting with verse 14. But as always, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, God. We thank you for your many blessings upon our life, Lord, for allowing us the opportunity to come into your house to worship, to praise, and to honor your name. Lord, we ask that you'll anoint my lips as I endeavor to bring forth your message, and Lord, that you'll stretch forth your hand on those that are listening and will listen, God, that you'll open up their eyes of understanding as well, God. We ask, Lord, that you'll anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive. In Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. Today, as I said, we're going to be studying the book of Revelation, chapter 3, starting with verse 14, the last of the seven churches, the church of Laodicea. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. The seventh and final church is Laodicea. It was a very rich city, approximately 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. As a matter of fact, 30 to 35 years before this letter was written, the city of Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake. It had the money and resources it needed to rebuild quickly. It was on a major trade route to Colossus, Antioch, as well as Damascus. In terms of wealth, this city was very wealthy materialistically. However, Spiritually, it was very poor. Jesus addresses this letter telling the church that he was around before creation and that he personally witnessed the birth of it all. He was reminding them of the facts stated in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of earth and to him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And in Revelation 3 and 7, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierce him, and all kindreds of the earth shall well because of him. Even so, amen. In Colossians 1 and verse 15, Christ tells us that he is the image of God the Father, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. John 14, 8 through 11, Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself. But the Father that dwelleth in me doeth works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the works' sake. Christ is painting a picture to the church of Laodicea that he knew what he was talking about, that he was around before it all started, and he'll be around after it's all over. Colossians 1 and 18 tells us of his preeminence. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. 
Amen, or so be it, was Jesus establishing the facts, and since he had established them, no one could dispute them. Christ was reminding the listeners that he was behind the course of human events. You know, we as men and women, we may think that we can change the world, but we can't. We don't have the power, nor do we have the authority to change the world, but Christ, through us, can change the world. Even if he just changes one person, he can change the world. For all the promises in 2 Corinthians 1 and 20, all of the promises of God in him are yea and in him amen and to the glory of God by us. Revelation 1 and 6, and hath made us kings and priests unto God his, his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Revelation 1 and 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which he is, was, and which he is to come, the Almighty. Even though Paul may never have visited the city of Laodicea, it did not mean he was not concerned for their spiritual welfare and their spiritual state. In Colossians 2, verses 1 and 2, he writes, For I would that you knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ. In Colossians 4 and 16 he wrote, And when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So even Paul was concerned about their state, their welfare, their spirituality, if you will. But isn't this a picture? Don't we see ourselves, church as a whole, as the church of Laodicea? Are we really concerned about our brothers and our sisters? Are we really concerned about what's going on in their world? Look around the church. If you do happen to go to church, look around. The numbers are probably not where they were at before the pandemic. And who knows, they may never get to the numbers that they were. I personally believe that God shook the world during the last two, two and a half years. Not because he's judging the world yet. Yes, he will judge us. But because he's wanting to separate the Ones that are true and faithful and the ones that are not true and faithful. And I don't think it's any coincidence that it seems like every time I turn around, churches that I visit, pastor friends that I know, teachers that I talk to, there are a large percentage of them now studying the book of Revelation. Why? Because we know that we're coming to the end and we want to figure out what it's going to be. We want to know what's going to happen because that's built into us. Well, I'm here to tell you, if you've stayed with us from the beginning of this book, this study of Revelation, and if you stay with us until the end, I don't know how long that will take. Christ himself may come back prior to the finishing of the book of Revelation or our study of the book. But know that it is all God's word. 
and it is for our edifying. It is for our benefit, and that's the reason why we open up Thursday night to have this Bible study. It is important to understand what is taking place and what will take place, but understand also that we're not going to know all of the answers. We do not know the name of the Antichrist. We do not know when the Antichrist will make his appearance. We do not know when the rapture of the church will take place. We do not know who the two witnesses are. We have good speculation, but we do not know for certain. God wrote it that way. Not to confuse us, because he is not the author of confusion. He wrote it that way so that we would study and we would show ourselves approved and we would be ready. And that we would witness when this time came. But too often, as a Christian, we're too short on witnessing and too long on complaining. Verse 15, chapter 3 says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that there were cold or hot. There is no commendation, no attaboy, no accolades for this church. Christ launched into the condemnation of this church immediately, unlike the other churches. Their works were lackadaisical and were not even enough to get by. They were half-hearted and lazy in all areas of their Christian walk. They had riches and material goods. Why did they need God? I won't tell you who it was, but there was an individual who was very wealthy back in the 70s, 80s, maybe even into the early 90s, and he made the comment, I'm so rich I don't need God. He was the owner of a baseball team. He was the owner of a major broadcasting company. And over the years, he's had to sell most of all of that just to stay afloat. You're not too rich for God. Even Elon Musk needs God. Isn't this a picture of today's Christians for the most part? Look around at churches today. The pews are empty because there are other things to do. In the so-called Christian's eyes, more important things to do. I must network. I must build my business. I must fill in the blank. There's nothing wrong with building your business and there's nothing wrong with networking. But I actually had a manager one time to tell me to go to church to network. That's not why you should go to church. It is good business to go to church so people can see me. But Jesus tells the church their actions are not hot and they're not cold. But he wished that they were hot or cold. I can understand hot. Hot is on fire for God. God is growing and you're growing and you're maturing and... Oh, hot is exponential growth. Growth in, in spiritual understanding. Hot is good. But why would God tell the church that he wished they were either hot or cold? Why cold? Have you ever stopped and thought about that for a brief moment? 
Oh, I could have seen him telling the church of Laodicea, oh, I wish you were hot. I wish you was on fire for me. But he actually said, I wish you were either hot or cold. On opposite ends of the spectrum. But the church was in the middle. The pivot point, if you will, the balance, the fulcrum, whatever you want to call it. Cold is not comfortable. Cold is seeking warmth, seeking refuge. Cold is miserable and having a desire for warmth. Cold is something else. Sir Isaac Newton, an English mathematician, physicist, astronomer, alchemist, theologian, and author, done everything. He wrote some of the laws of physics, and one of his laws he was able to postulate was the law of cooling or heating. Now, here's the physics lesson. If you saw that Facebook post to come and join me, and you'd learn some physics. Here's your physics lesson tonight. The law of cooling or heating. This law states that the bigger the differential between the object's surface temperature and its surrounding temperature, the greater the change or the faster the change of temperature will take place. What is that? Okay, think about this. You've got a cold Mountain Dew sitting there. And you've got a Mountain Dew that's almost room temperature. Which one of those two Mountain Dews is going to change its temperature faster? The one that's closest to room temperature or the one that's colder? This law of cooling and heating states that the one that is cold will change its temperature faster than the one that's closer to room temperature. Doesn't seem right, but think about when you go and you've got a hot cup of tea or a hot coffee or whatever, hot chocolate, hot cacao, whatever you drink, and you sit it down, it cools off a lot faster than that cup that's been sitting there for a while that's already cooled down. It will change its temperature faster. In other words, a hot cup of tea will cool faster to room temperature than a cup of tea that is only a few degrees above room temperature. A cold cup of water will warm to room temperature faster than a lukewarm cup of water. I'm not saying it will get to the room temperature faster. I'm saying it will make a greater change faster. God was wanting the Laodiceans to be cold so they'd heat faster than the lukewarm ones. He was telling the Laodiceans, I wish you were, if you were not going to be hot, I wish you were cold, so it would make a faster difference in your life. I wish you was hungry. I wish you was seeking me. I wish you would be reading and studying my word. That's what God is telling the Laodiceans. That's what he's telling churches in America and all over the world. I really wish you'd get hot, but I really wish you'd be cold. One of the two. Don't be this lukewarm. Don't be this middle fulcrum. Be on one end of the spectrum or the other, but don't get in the middle.
Don't be average. God doesn't just want fanatics. He wants informed fanatics. Verse 16, so then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The Laodiceans were room temperature. Their efforts were half-hearted and lazy at best. God told them because he wanted a hot cup of tea or a cold glass of water, not a drink that was lukewarm, that he would spit them out. Lukewarm can be defined as being average. An item that is either hot or cold, if left by itself, will conform to the surrounding temperature of the air. Eventually, everything reaches an equilibrium. Everything. Hot cup of tea, if it's left by itself, it will cool down to room temperature. A cold glass of water, even with ice in it, the ice will melt and the water will rise. The temperature will rise to be room temperature. Everything goes to average if you don't put fuel to the fire. You can make a fire hotter by putting more fuel to it. I wonder why he said, forsake not the assembly. An item that is either hot or cold by itself will conform to the surrounding temperature. God does not want us to conform. He wants to transform us. We cannot transform by ourselves. Just as cold water cannot be a cup of hot tea without some external help, we need God's help. Romans 12, 2 and 3 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God dealt to every man the measure of faith. Every one of us has a measure of faith. And that measure of faith is what gets you or what allows the Holy Spirit to draw you. See, we can't even get to Christ by ourselves. We have to be drawn by the Holy Spirit. And it's that measure of faith that God has given us that allows us to believe that there is a Holy Spirit and that he is drawing us. We can get hot only by putting more fuel in the fire. And what's the fuel? The word, study, worship, praise. That's the fuel. We can't do it by ourselves, though. We have to have the word. We have to have God. We have to have Jesus. We have to have the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, because thou sayest, I am rich and increase with goods and have need of nothing. Let me park it there for a second. We all have need of something and that's Jesus Christ and we need him more and more every day. We cannot do this by ourselves. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Materially, the citizens of Laodicea were rich. The city was known for their wool and woolen garments. One of their more famous wool articles was black in color. Long-haired black sheep, bred for this purpose, was famous until the 19th century of the 1800s, if you will. 
Materially, they were wealthy in man's eyes, but in spiritual sense, they were poor, blind, and naked. They were lulled into a false sense of security because of their wealth and prestige. The churches today, especially in America, are lulled into that same false sense of security and well-being. Peter and John were going into the temple and was stopped by the lame man begging for alms. When Peter saw the man's greater need, he spoke this to him in Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What is more important, silver and gold? Yes, we need money to pay the bills. A granted. Yes, I understand that. But we need Jesus even more. We need Jesus even more. The silver and gold can't take us to heaven. The silver and gold can keep us from heaven if we fall in love with it. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. And if we fall in love with our silver and gold, our bank account, our fancy car, our fine clothes, our big house, if we fall in love with that, we've lost We've lost the whole picture. God doesn't say you have to be poor and living in a hut. He doesn't say that you have to be walking everywhere as you go. You can have money. You can have, I know a lot of people that have money that love the Lord. I have a good friend of mine. He's 80 years old. He's in his 80s. Well, he'd be about 82, 83 now. Man is no telling how rich this guy is. But you can't be with him that he's not showing, maybe not verbally speaking it, but showing the love of God in his life. And he'll tell you right quick about his church and about God if you start to talk to him. He doesn't get in your face with it, but you, if you recognize him and you walk with him any little bit, you understand that there's something different about this guy. And there is no telling what this man is worth. He's given away more stuff to people than most of us have. And he takes no credit for it. He'll tell you the good Lord blessed him and he's going to turn around and bless as many as he can. And the rich young man who came to Jesus asked what he needed to do to have eternal life. In Matthew 19, 21, verses 20, uh, 21 and 22, Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast. And give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Some will tell you that that was none other than the man who's later to become Paul. That was him as Saul coming up to Jesus. That's what some will tell you. There's nothing in the scriptures that says yes or nothing in the scriptures that says no. I just throw that out as a freebie. Christ, if you take that scripture out of context, though, it looks like he's telling you that you have to be poor. He's not saying that. It's where your heart lies. And he knew, he saw that man's heart, and he understood that that man's heart was on his possessions and not on him, not on Christ. 
Christ is not telling the rich young man that the only poor can make it to heaven. He was telling him that when you love money, comfort, luxury, and the good life more than you do God, there's the problem. We like to talk about, oh, all of the stuff that we've got. Because I'm here to tell you, you don't have anything that God didn't give you. Again, I had a manager one time to tell me that the company I worked for was the reason why I could afford the lifestyle that I had. They were responsible for my lifestyle. And I quickly looked at him and said, they may be able to, they may have afforded me to get to this lifestyle, but God gave me the job. Not man, God. Because when I started with the company I worked for 36 years ago, you nearly had to know, you really had to know somebody in the company to get into this business. I knew no one because this is 300 miles from where I grew up. This is a six hour drive from my home from where my parents now lay in the grave waiting for their rapture. Said, no, I didn't know anybody here. I was just a young punk. That time I had hair and less weight. Now I have more weight and no hair. <laughs> Old age, what, do you, what can you say? Where's your love at? Where's your heart at? If your heart is not on God, if your eyes are not fixed firmly on him, you're missing the picture. Verse 18 says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. Anoint thine eyes with eyesaph that, they, that thou mayest seest me. Putting gold or any metal through a fire, through heat, removes the impurities in the metal and makes it pure. Proverbs 17 and 3 states, The fining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord trieth the hearts. Hebrews 12 and 9, For our God is a consuming fire. God wants us to be pure, to be refined. The only way that is possible is to allow God to purify us in his way. He tells the church of Laodicea to only buy refined or purified gold so that they could be rich. The city and the people were rich, but not in the way Christ wanted them to be rich. There was so much more that they could do and be. As stated earlier, Laodicea was known for black wool and black woolen garments, but Jesus was telling them to buy white robes. This was and is not racist. The garment was to cover their spiritual nakedness and their spiritual shame, just as Adam and Eve attempted to cover their nakedness in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7, and the eyes of them were, both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves apron. The church was spiritually blind and could no longer see that they were not living the way God wanted them to live. The emperor's clothes. Remember the old story? The emperor went out, didn't have clothes on, but he had been deceived to tell and was told that he had the finest of wardrobe. And it was one little kid that pointed out the obvious why he's not wearing any, any clothing. And they tried to hush him. They tried to get the little kid to stop. And he's like, but he's not got any clothes on. 
what's it going to take for us to recognize that we are going out into public spiritually naked? What's it going to take for us to realize that we are trying to do our jobs, we're trying to have our families, we're trying to do whatever, but we don't have the armor of God on. See, it's the armor of God from Ephesians that we have to put on and never take off. That's our protection. That's our covering. God told them to get medicine, ISAF, so they could remove the sin in their eyes and see again. No, you can't go to CVS and buy something. So they could say with clarity, just as the blind man, Jesus healed by making mud and putting it on his eyes. In John 9 and 25, the former blind man answered the Pharisees. He answered and said, whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know that, whereas I was blind, now I see. Allow Christ to point out the the problems in your life, my life. Allow Christ to come into our temple. Allow Christ to come into our house. You see, I don't have to go to Christ clean when I first come. I don't, and I didn't. Because you see, I'll never be good enough to come into the presence of God, of God or Christ or even the Holy Spirit. Our righteousness is but filthy rags. So he's telling us that we come as we are, but we leave as we should. And that's with him and the full armor. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, be zealous therefore, and repent. God disciplines those he loves and that love him. If we did not receive the discipline, we would be unruly and spoiled. God does not want us acting like that. He wants us to feel loved and show love wherever we go. In Luke 12 and 48, But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes, shall he be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. God has blessed us, especially here in the United States, above and beyond. But what do we do with it? We turn it into arrogance. We turn it into pompousness. We turn it into conceit. And no, I'm not down on America. I think America is a great country, and I, I thank God that I was born and raised in America, and I certainly thank God that I was born and raised where I was raised in Tennessee. But what I'm saying is, we have got to get away from this, us four no more. It doesn't matter who they are. Bring them in. He said to go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to what? Come in. That's where we've got to go. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. There is a famous painting of this verse. Jesus is standing at a door and knocking. However, there is no doorknob 
on the door on Jesus' side. For the door to be opened, it must be opened by the individual inside. Jesus is a gentleman. He will not open the door, but patiently waits for it to be opened and knocks. The person inside the house has to open the door. That's us. That is us. And I don't care if you've walked with the Lord for 30 years or if you've walked with the Lord for three hours. You you are standing at that door letting Christ in. When he knocks to tell you something, open the door. Don't just yell at him through the door. Oh, come on in, it's open. There's no doorknob on his side. You have to get up, go and open the door. Verse 21, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am sit down my father in his throne. Matthew 24 and 13, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Christ has the authority to grant us access to heaven and to the throne room. He has become the door. It is because of what he did on the cross of Calvary that he has that authority. Just as what he did on the cross, God the Father welcomed him to heaven, Christ will welcome us to heaven. Verse 22, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The letters to the seven churches are now complete. The last letter to the church of Laodicea is finished, and all the letters will be sent to the ministers or the angels of those churches. Let's look a little deeper, though, at the church of Laodicea. It's approximately 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It's a two days journey between the two cities, but a world apart. Philadelphia received no condemnation, and the church of Laodicea received no commendation. The churches were world apart regarding their wealth as well. Philadelphia was made up of agricultural farming individuals, and Laodicea was industrial and textiles. The church of Laodicea was comfortable and was not willing to rock the boat. Their passion for God, if there ever were passionate, was lukewarm. Room temperature, average. Because they were comfortable, it was hard to reach them and even harder for them to move or act on their passion. Perhaps they were at one time on fire for God. But the cares of the world and the love of finer things of life have replaced their passion for God and have made them passionate about luxury in comfort. Because they were lukewarm and not hot or cold, God warned them that they were in danger of losing their direction and their way and their position in heaven. However, the city of Laodicea survived until the 7th century AD. Archaeologists tell us that there were many Christian churches in this region, with one of the churches covering an entire city block. An earthquake devastated the city and it was quickly abandoned. Archaeology also points out that a lot of the public monument and fixtures had both Jewish and Christian symbols on them. Perhaps they were not put at the same time on the monuments, but the markings of the two different religions were present on the, mark, on the monuments and the statues. 
In the churches, we see a primitive photograph of days to come. The book of Revelation was written during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitians. He was the first emperor to openly state he was also a god while he was alive. He ruled that if you did not worship him, you could be treated unfairly and even killed. Unless an individual had the emperor's mark, they were not allowed to buy and sell. Some churches resisted completely. Others resisted a little and led to see a compromise completely. This church, though it was materially rich, was spiritually bankrupt. We've studied the seven churches. And yes, it does represent seven church ages. But I hope if you've, if you've followed us all of this way for the last seven weeks, I hope you realize that today's church and today's churches can be found in one of the seven churches. The church of Ephesus, the church of Smyrna, the church of Pergamos, the church of Thyatira, the church of Sardis, the church of Philadelphia, and the church of Laodicea. We all know churches like these. So I'm going to end tonight with a prayer, as always, encouraging you to come back next week. We will get into chapter three, uh, excuse me, chapter four, and we're going to visit the throne room of God spiritually. We're going to find some interesting things out about the throne room of God, things that you may not have noticed, and maybe you did. So I encourage you next Thursday, good Lord's willing, we will be back studying chapter, starting in our chapter four study. I have no clue how far we will get, only a couple of verses, I'm sure, because we don't want to take this too fast. And hopefully we're not boring you, but going too slow. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings. And Lord, we ask that you'll move and that you'll touch, Lord, that you'll stretch forth your hand on each and every heart, each and every life of those that are listening, Lord, and of those that will listen. God, we ask that you'll draw each of us closer to you, Lord. Lord, that you'll anoint our ears to hear and our hearts to receive, Lord, so that we can, Lord, boldly go into your throne room as needed, God. We ask, Lord, that you'll move and touch, that you'll, uh, Lord, that you'll allow us to have an opportunity to witness for you, but Lord, that you will give us the strength and encouragement to seize that opportunity so that we can witness for you. In Jesus' sweet and holy name we pray. Amen. If you're interested, you've not called all of these, you can find them on Facebook, or you can also go to Trinity Word Ministry channel on YouTube. All of these Revelation classes are posted out there as well. Or you can go to trinitywordministry.com. That's all one word, trinitywordministry.com, and you can hear all of these Revelation classes. Until we see each other again, God bless.